okay. If you're a journalist who uses the tool Help a Reporter Out, or Harrow, listen up. Harrow is moving to Cision's new app, Connectively. But what is Connectively? Well, imagine a place where you can quickly connect with expert sources for your next story. Connectively is a new app from Cision that's changing the way journalists like us, content creators, experts and PRs work together. So if you're in search of credible sources, Connectively is your next stop. With just a click, you can publish your queries. These go straight to a feed where experts from loads of different backgrounds can respond, giving you their expertise. So go on, visit connectively.us to sign up for free. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-V-E-L-Y dot U-S. Connectively dot us. Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Emma Wilkinson. And I'm Lily Cantor. Welcome back to series 11. We've got another corker of an episode today. Uh, You know the format by now. Each week we discuss an issue affecting freelance journalists and chat through the problems and solutions with the help of two experienced guests. This series we're also on YouTube um, for a bit of an experiment. So we're attempting to look uh, vaguely presentable for the the record. I I wouldn't say we always look this presentable, but... (laughs) Maybe that's just me. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a very good segue to this week's topic because we're actually thinking about rethinking social media. So Emma and I have been discussing recently, really, whether we need to go back to the drawing board when it comes to social media and how we use it. Um, and of course, this all sort of stems back to a certain tech person uh, buying a certain bird-themed app, which we will get to in a minute. Yeah, so before we open that can of worms, let's have a positive start, Lily, by talking about our freelance win of the week. You you go first. Well, mine's a bit of a double-edged sword. So I've mentioned previously I was meant to be going on a press trip next week, and that was one of my little uh, highlights. I've now had to cancel that because I've got COVID, and the thought of running around Lake Garda, which was a very attractive thought, is now kind of the last thing I want to be doing when I can... Uh, hardly breathe so I've had to cancel that but um what I have got lined up instead um not till 2025 but I managed to get myself a press place on a race in Rwanda which I'm very excited about so that is definitely my win of the week how about you that that is quite the press trip let's hope that you're not jinxing all these press trips by mentioning them as your highlight of the week on the podcast <laughs> like maybe you should just be keeping quiet now yeah. um yeah so mine is it's nowhere near as exciting as that but I got a very last minute commission but it was for a really straightforward news story that kind of thing that you can just do in your sleep it had all the information and comment from organizations that I needed so it took no time at all so it was just a little bit of extra spending money it was quite it all went very smoothly. I did it in about an hour. I was like, great. Perfect. You always Send seem to be getting those. You're always getting those. <laughs> You're an ace at those quick wins. It's who you know, not what you know. Yeah. Though.
Okay, it's time to introduce our guests then. So first up, we've got Stephen Asarch, a freelance tech writer based in New York. He's written for Insider, Newsweek, Inverse, and many more. We also have with us Chris Stokel-Walker, who is our, seems to be our FFJ go-to tech expert. Um, he writes for pretty much everyone, including the New York Times, Wired, and The Economist. And he's the author of three books about the digital world, including TikTok Boom. Okay, so Stephen, hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Let's um, come to you first then. Um, so as a tech journalist, can you tell us a bit more about how you use social media and which apps you sort of personally find useful for your work? Sure. Uh, so I used to be a big Twitter guy. I think as a journalist, it's the best way to reach sources, find the people you need, and broadcast that you've written a story at all. Uh, in the current days where Twitter has sort of changed and become X, uh, it's less important. I mean, it's better for my mental health because I spend less time binging on the app, but it's still an incredibly important place to be and a place that you need to really like, at least for now, show up and you know use to the best of your ability. Uh, I've moved a lot of my time over to Reddit and Discord, which I don't know if they count as social medias in the same way that a Twitter or a Facebook does, but I think they're a great way to really dissect the information you need, break it apart, and get it out to a much, you know, nicher specific audience. Um, I'll pop onto LinkedIn on occasion to see if it's still, you know, working. But um, those those are still the, the platforms that I spend the most time on and, and think they're the most important. It's interesting that you mentioned Reddit there because I've not um, made much use of it. But in terms of the field that I write about and kind of medicine and health, there are some quite useful forums on there for finding stories. I can see Chris nodding his head there. So let's Chris, let's ask you the same question, really. And, um, you know, what? what social media do you make use of and has that changed in the past sort of 12 months have you experimented with some of those new kids on the block like threads or mastodon yeah i have i have threads and i have mastodon on my phone and on my ipad but i don't really open them and i think that's just because there's only so many hours in the day and you can't be bothered to try and search through all of these ones and often the conversations are repeated it's interesting obviously yeah, Stephen mentions Reddit. That is a, a really good example. And as you say, Emma, you have junior doctors forums. They're really active on Reddit in terms of subreddits there. And um, you know, I did a story um, just recently for Vice, which was looking at um, people who have been kind of you know, banned across lots of different dating apps. Where I found the the case studies through Reddit. That's I guess been somewhere that journalists have traditionally looked, particularly. In kind of you know our beats that we're looking at me and Stephen in particular on on kind of internet culture and, and so on um interestingly i had a conversation with roman chowdhury who um used to work at twitter uh then left and did a podcast interview with her yesterday where she apologized for not ever getting back to my dms because she no longer checks twitter and she said you've got to come on to linkedin we've got to connect there and i was like isn't linkedin just that terrible place that like nobody goes to and is full of like business bros talking about their kids and then turning that into some sort of like business maxim. And she said, no, it's changing. So I will dip my toe back in the water, I think, of LinkedIn. But yeah, I'm still clinging desperately onto the sinking ship that is 
Twitter and I refuse to call it X um, just because basically that's how I've built my career in terms of finding people on there and, and the immediacy of it. And I really don't want to lose that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've I've been looking for a case study today and I tried lots of other ways. I'd contacted organisations directly. I'd use Facebook, hadn't been able to find anyone. And I went on to Twitter and within minutes I had loads of people contacting me and I was like, oh, damn it, it's still working just about. Um, but um, but it obviously has has changed and it the functionality of it has um you know seems to have got worse recently Stephen just wanted to ask you about this really because it's more difficult for people to see your staff and and it seems to be you know things are not appearing on your timeline that were before um but admittedly you know neither Emma or I are prepared to pay for Twitter or to call it x um so I just want to you know should we be paying for it and and should we or at the same time if we're not willing to pay for it is it a bad thing that we've sort of become reliant on this this one platform sure uh i refuse to pay for x uh i think it's weird i think the actual stuff that you get out of it isn't worth it unless you want to turn you know go alt-right as some media people do and just farm engagement and clicks for money because uh, that seems to be a new business model uh, I even know a few journalists who, you know, get Twitter blue and turn the little blue check mark off because it looks bad and it's kind of embarrassing to have. Uh, I think the fact that journalism in general, because by the time I jumped on, you know, about seven or eight years ago, Twitter was the main journalism hub. So I didn't really get a say in making the, the journalist part of Twitter. But I think the fact that we put all of our eggs in one basket was was kind of bad and has kind of forced us to scurry like cockroaches in the light to find a new place that seems slightly better. But because social media platforms by their definition are like kind of the, the they get shaped by the people in charge. And when those people change, it kind of messes with the whole system, the ecosystem that has been so carefully curated. So, and we're, we're, we're dealing with, you know, having, having to deal with the community guidelines problems and the terms of service issues that are constantly changing on each social media platform. Twitter was, was so good because it was a place that we could go to talk about these niche issues without having it a giant mega horn to every single person on the planet in the same way that a story virally can. Um, it was a way for us to communicate in a much smaller niche that could reach a larger audience. But now because of the ways Twitter has changed and the fact that we can't DM certain people unless we have blue or you know how we get tweet ratioed, not like actual Twitter ratio, I mean like the amount of tweets we can post. Uh, it's changed so much and it's, it's definitely something that I've noticed in my day-to-day -day reporting that I still have to use Twitter and it, it, it kind of messes with the flow, but because of the way everything's changed, um, we're sort of stuck with it. And uh, I, I wish there was a better alternative, but I don't see that coming anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I find the, um, the DM situation to be a real problem now like I'm constantly saying can you please follow me I need to because 
it's just that speed of being able to get in touch with someone. You can send emails, but they just get lost. And it just seemed if you knew someone was active, you could see they were posting and they were there. It's such a quick way to get in touch with people. And if I'm doing a news shift and I want to speak to GPs and I I know I can see that they're on there. So I know they're active. If I send them an email, I don't get a response. So um, it was it's, ah, it's just so useful. It's very annoying. But one of the arguments that um, you hear, Chris, is that and that some journalists have made is that you pay for other services. I pay for, you know, Otter to do transcripts. So there's loads of things that I pay for as a journalist and it's tax deductible. Um, are we all being a bit too stubborn <laughs> in not wanting to give our money to Twitter? Because would it make our lives easier, I guess, is my question. Being like, I'm not going to do it. I just can't bring myself. But is that far too stubborn? Am I, am I cutting off my nose to spite my face? I guess you might be, although I'm also the same in that I just refuse because Elon Musk is just such a terrible person and I don't want to validate what he's doing with Twitter by giving money. Although, you know, weirdly, I, I had to spend £28 on his autobiography, on his biography by Walter Isaacson, um, which was a ridiculous amount of money. But then I'm also going to expense that to the, the publication that I ended up doing the story based on it for. Um, I get the point of kind of using it as a paid for tool. And I, I do see the utility I had um, literally overnight an issue like yours, Emma, in terms of the DM thing where I got in touch with someone. I said, can you DM me? I kind of forgot as I've been using as the stock phrase, can you follow then DM me um, for the last couple of weeks, forgot to put the follow in. And so, they couldn't DM me for a while. I got an email overnight, which I would have you know, checked if it had been an actual DM because it would have been on my phone, but instead I, I don't have push notifications on my email. So I didn't look at it overnight. And so I missed the chance to talk to this person before the deadline that I had for a story just simply because of Elon Musk. And it's kind of that, that friction, I suppose, that is a real issue. I mean, I still think that there are ways around it. Um, you know, just simply having to talk people through it. And I think, you know, my memory gets worse and worse over time. But, you know, there was a period where you couldn't DM people unless you followed each other. So, you know, it, we're kind of reverting back to that a little bit. I guess the the concern for me, and it's one that, you know, Stephen touched on a little bit there is, you know, we long advise like digital creators, YouTubers and TikTokers and others to like not build their their businesses on quicksand because there's always the risk that if you're on a private platform, they can pull the rug out and God knows I've written so many of those stories in the past. Yeah, not following that own advice. But I, you know, it's it's more a concern for me, I think, less about the payment stuff and more about the dwindling number of users. There comes a point, I think, when you know what Elon Musk called the de facto public square before he bought it doesn't become that anymore it kind of becomes a self-selecting niche of people as, as Stephen said like you know alt-right wannabes or or something like that and and then that you loses its utility as kind of like a, a virtual vox popping space which is where suddenly that becomes a problem I don't think we're at that extinction event yet but that's always the fear that actually you know maybe the ground is slipping a little bit underneath us constantly as we go and we won't realize that is actually at that terminal point until it's too late. Mm. 
So what do we do? I mean, Stephen, if it is all slipping away, you know, as freelance journalists, should we, you know, should we be trying harder on other platforms or should we, you know, just kind of stick with it? And sure. Just hope for the best. Sure. I, I wish I had a better answer uh, other than uh, stick it out, maybe. I think when it comes to like my work, I'm, I'm very focused on the digital culture space and, and talking and finding influencers. And as Chris said, um, influencers, it's important to diversify your portfolio and not necessarily stick on just one platform or else you're going to get screwed over by the uh, hierarchy in charge. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more the newsletters and the sub stacks and people creating their own little communities because the internet has basically devolved into its own little communities. You know, the internet used to be a near infinite amount of websites talking about anything imaginable. Now it's become four social media platforms that you check every day and that's all you can basically do. So it's just going to become more and more and more niche and focusing more and more on smaller communities. So I think as time goes on, we're going to see journalists have to find ways to reach the people that, that care about their work and want to focus on their work um, through these more smaller, specific platforms. Uh, I think right now we're kind of still stuck with Twitter uh, or X. Uh, it always depends on my editor if I get to call it Twitter or X. Uh, I usually just throw a question mark in there to see who will catch it. Um, but I think we're just going to have to be stuck with Twitter for now until a better alternative comes out. Because I've tried threads. Uh, it was just full of ads for Burger King. So I stopped using it almost immediately. Uh, and I'm still not on Blue Sky. So if you have an invite, let me know. Uh, but uh, I think we're just going to stick with Twitter for now until a better alternative shows up. Or we're just going to keep creating our smaller and smaller communities until all we're just talking to is each other in an echo chamber. Yeah, I think mostly I'm just, it's very egotistical of me, but I'm just really angry that I don't get the engagement that I used to. So if I'm posting a story I've done, it just doesn't, you just don't. You kind of half the time you're going, hello, can anybody actually see me on the, I'm here? Because I'd spent so long getting that blue tick. I'd spent so long building that community. It just feels like a waste of time. Um, you mentioned threads there, Stephen, and uh, Chris, I'm going to come to you about that because I, I've i been really trying with threads. I had high hopes for threads. It felt like it looked the most like Twitter. It was kind of more intuitive to kind of, oh, the lights have gone out on me, more intuitive to kind of um, use, oh, but I'm really struggling with it because they're just the functionality isn't there. And I just think, and I'm just not seeing much. Do we just need to be patient, Chris? Is it gonna is it gonna come? Like Twitter took a while to build, right? It did, but I guess Twitter took a while to build in a really unique set of circumstances and that kind of previous era that Stephen was talking about, where like the web was much more weird and sprawling. It's it's actually really interesting because I've been covering we're well, not covering, I've been looking back at bits of this. Um, for a book that I've done on history of the internet and like you know, Twitter kind of spread through lots of weird unique circumstances 
that are specific to its growth. So it, it got used at South by Southwest um, you know, early on in its growth and became kind of adopted by tech adherents there and then had things like, you know, the plane landing on the Hudson River, the, the, the sort of the actual real life news event that inspired the movie Sully. And then it had Osama bin Laden dying and these kind of news events where people congregated around it and, and used it in a way that really shaped its kind of value for journalism and threads will struggle with that, I think, in part because Twitter is still around. It's, you know, better still, despite many of the issues. Um, but there's also this kind of like weird stink with it, which is it's connected to Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. It has that link to Mark Zuckerberg. We've come through the Cambridge Analytica scandal and we're all a little bit skeptic around tech. And actually, if we're talking about the risks of putting all your eggs in one basket and backing Elon Musk as kind of like the person that's going to maintain and curate and, and keep alive the platform that we use day in, day out in journalism. There's this whole other issue where do you really trust Meta to do the same thing? They're profit-driven. They they have these kind of you know, sometimes questionable ideas and we've seen in recent months them withdrawing money from local news initiatives and so actually you know i guess the question is even if threads were to become popular and you know the suggestions that they just put out like a half-baked product it's kind of got that stench of failure a little bit already in the same way that actually kind of 15 years ago bing did as a search engine compared to google although that's kind of come back a little bit thanks to chat gpt there's that question of even if they could get rid of that kind of sense of failure if we would want to leap in headlong to do this because i think there are real issues there yeah yeah and i think data is something we wanted to come on to because obviously when we're deciding as journalists which of these platforms we want to use should we be thinking more about how our data and our information is going to be used and and you know what's going to happen when we send information in a dm like who is actually seeing that i mean Stephen, is this something you think that perhaps we need to be thinking more carefully about particularly as journalists yeah it's it's absolutely something i think about when i'm doing a, a sensitive story about an internet sex pest or a company doing some shady stuff i don't want other people in the pot reading this stuff uh, I don't like using Twitter DMs to, for this sensitive information. Uh, I do have a signal. I do use that as much as I can to try and get people in a safer space to open up. But I, again, I often deal with digital culture influencers who don't really understand the ramifications of the things they say or do. So they will just dump valuable information in a Twitter DM and like dox a person's number who may not necessarily want to know. And I don't know who's looking at that. But I can't just be like, hey, can you take that back and like post it on a more secure platform? Um, but when when I'm working at it, I always try to um bring people into a more secure platform. But you know, sometimes you don't you don't have a say on the matter. I think as journalists in this new, because we're the the first generation of of these internet tech people, tech journalists. And we I, I assume everyone is reading my data at all time. 
if I say that I want a corn dog, I'm going to get an ad on Instacart saying, hey, why don't you add corn dogs to your cart? Like the phone is listening at all times. So our data is basically just being shuffled around to who knows who. And as journalists, the data we have is, is very sensitive. So trying to find that middle ground between being able to be open and approachable while also still being able to secure the information you have and not letting it into the evil hands of the Musk fanboys is, is definitely something that you have to think about. Absolutely. I mean, I uh, use Signal sometimes and that can go one of two ways, right? You either reassure someone that you're taking this seriously or they immediately panic about why what's this app that you asked that I've never heard of. Um, but I suppose that's your job as a journalist to to talk them through that. Um, I mean, Chris, TikTok's another one. How, can is it possible to use social media in an ethically conscious way? This is like I feel like there's no good options. No, there's not. And I think, yeah, with TikTok there there are their own issues around that. Um, not least we've seen the the surveillance of some actual journalists using the app, including uh, the Chris, uh, Christina Criddle from the Financial Times, who I did a, a podcast interview with her for Article 19, which is a, a non-profit um, based on kind of freedom of speech, um, human rights organization. And yeah, she, she talked through how essentially what TikTok claims were rogue employees who have subsequently been sack from their job had had used um their knowledge of her username and you know who she was in touch with to try and outsource that she had within the company they didn't succeed as far as she knows but it was really a warning and i think um you know this is particularly of issue if you're covering tech companies because you you end up invariably kind of using the platforms that you're writing about to try and find the people who work for the businesses that you're writing about as well. Um, but it is a concern, I think, for all tech platforms. I mean, I'm doing a story today for Fast Company about um, how Google has in inadvertently been leaking um, chat histories with Google Bard. It's kind of AI chat GPT alike uh, into search results. And there's this kind of weird issue where you know, we're almost in trouble whichever way we go because of the way that this is all so, so intertwined and signal so far seems to be kind of the one saving grace. But as you say, Emma, and we've discussed this before at conferences and things like that, that it does put some people off where they go, what is generally maybe like a bit of innocuous, innocuous whistleblowing. I say that as if that's yeah, possible. It's a contradiction in terms, I suppose, but something that's not a huge deal, but is requiring privacy in some way and some element of source protection. Suddenly people feel, I don't know, as if they're like deep throat in Watergate or, or something like that. It, it, it kind of amps up, I think, the the worries here. So yeah, it's it's difficult to say and you know, probably won't get onto this, but it becomes harder with upcoming legislation in the UK. The online safety bill wants to kind of make journalists job harder by removing the ability to have end-to-end -end encryption. So essentially, you know, the possibility of your message never being tapped into by authorities um, currently exists, but politicians in the UK and potentially elsewhere, I suppose, might want to try and 
end that and, and that has real ramifications for how we do our jobs and chris while we've got you here as uh, the expert on tiktok how is that working for is it working for journalists is it because lily and i tried it for a bit and then immediately gave up it hurt our brains i think maybe we're just too old but maybe we're missing a trick here is it does it have a usefulness there for working journalists I think it can. I think it can. You can source people for one thing. You can tap into kind of conversations, admittedly through video, um, that are happening in disparate sub communities. That can be really useful. So you could look into the world of medicine. For for Stephen, it's kind of self evident that the, you know, the creators that he covers will already be on there. Um, and it is useful not just as kind of sourcing potential interviewees and finding ideas for stories, but also for you know, disseminating content. One of the people that does pretty well on that is is Taylor Lorenz, who will, you know, basically repackage bits of her written stories into kind of first person pieces to camera, as we would describe, I guess, in traditional journalism, little bits of you know, discursive narrative um, that describes a story and what it is. We've got also Sophia Smith Gaylor, who used to work at Vice, recently went freelance. He was doing this stuff. Um, one person that's really, really good, I think is a, a friend of FFJ is, is Laura Garcia, who works for BBC Mundo, has a, a kind of version of this. So there are opportunities along the journalism pipeline from sourcing stories, sourcing interviewees, and then actually the bit after you've produced the journalism, disseminating it and broadcasting it to an audience. That does work. But it is an additional thing that journalists have to do. And you have to be comfortable in front of camera. You have to then learn the the kind of formats and the memes and the general kind of tone of TikTok, which is in itself a big time sink. So, you know, I don't blame people for not doing it. I don't. I dipped in to try and publicize my book on TikTok on it and then haven't really posted anything since. Yeah, I think it like you say, it's one of those things that if you do it you can get it really right but it does seem to be so time consuming and actually is your time better spent elsewhere and I think that's that's something that is through freelancers we need to think about kind of where we're spending our time online and the different platforms and, and our our niches as well like I I use Instagram specifically for my journalism around running and fitness because it's quite a visual thing and it works well but you know Emma wouldn't do that for medicine um she'll use it you know just for personal so again it kind of comes back to kind of what you're doing you've both mentioned reddit as well um and I wonder Stephen if we, we bring you back in again like how do you think journalists kind of should decide like which platforms they're going to spend their time on whether that's for sourcing stories or kind of promoting what they're doing i think the first thing you really should keep in mind is do you want to be an influencer or do you want to just be a journalist i think in today's day and age in order to have that audience and be able to curate that community i was talking about before you kind of have to be an online personality you know posting videos on TikTok reels on instagram youtube shorts video is is where a lot of people's eyes are on these days but uh the written word is still to me more interesting and impactful uh i don't want to be an influencer uh, i cover them and the idea of being one of them uh fills me with fear and horror so i'd like to be able to just stick with the written word 
and let that be my, you know, guiding light. But I think in today's day and age, being an influencer is what you really want to be. So finding the social media platform that, that fits for you is mainly just trying a bunch of them and seeing which one sticks. I think the algorithms dictate a lot of what happens on these apps. So figuring out how that algorithm works is super impactful and helpful when it comes to trying to figure that out. Um, I don't want to be stuck on Twitter. I'd love to be able to soar my wings on a space where I'm not going to get death threats for daring to uh, call Daddy Musk uh, a, a no-no word. But uh, that only comes with, with time and effort. So finding the social media platform that, that works for you is just trial and error and figuring out how internet addicted slash famous you want to be. Yeah, and I think... I think basically you have to be strategic, right? You can't do everything. I mean, Chris, you mentioned, um, you both mentioned LinkedIn actually before. And I, um, that's one that I really struggle with because we have dipped in and out of LinkedIn so many times. And I th part of me just thinks, oh, maybe I just need to put a bit more effort into it. But I just don't see that there's any re return there. Um, so it is about being strategic, I think. Um, Chris, I've got two questions. Have you got any more tips about how to be strategic um, about which you use? But also, can you be a journalist and have no social media presence? I think so. On the latter, yeah, probably you can get away with it. But it makes everything so much harder. Like you should. Yeah, I teach undergraduates and postgraduates as part of my job alongside doing the freelance stuff. And there are some who... Yeah, these are kind of Gen, Gen Z kids who are, some of them are completely addicted to social media and they have all sorts of platforms and some of them have you know, been smart and realised the mistakes of us millennials who have made issues and problems with being on social media and they've kind of said, well, actually, no, I kind of want to stay away from that. But it is, I think, a vital place still for not just finding stories, but also for finding your network and, and kind of building connections in in that way and and i think that's kind of really vital but you as this sort of becomes more fragmented you're right we need to be smarter in how we work rather than harder and i think you know it doesn't harm to think about it maybe more not by a platform by platform basis but more by like a a medium by medium basis so instead of you know some of the some of the sort of concepts and some of the ways of presentation can be shared across different platforms linkedin though i'm not expert at it has hashtags for instance that you can use and tap into uh, in the same way that twitter does and obviously instagram has that as well and you know um threads is sort of half getting there at some point we believe Blue Sky, Mastodon, they kind of can have the opportunity of tying in those things. Um, and you know, the students that I teach, I increasingly say, well, you have to kind of be comfortable not just telling a story in words as much as we might want to. You have to then bear in mind that you might get asked on a podcast afterwards to try and recontextualize that story or to to go on TV to to explain it or to go on radio and to be able to actually distill a 600 word story 
into kind of a, a two minute conversation, a two way discussion with the presenter where they ask you four or five questions and you manage to hit the mark while getting across the information to a, a more generalized audience is a really valuable skill because the, the kind of the process of journalism just seems to be flattening and spreading out. So it's, yeah, I think maybe it's less about focusing on specific platforms and learning about kind of the generalized skills, not least because we don't know what's coming next, frankly. If we'd had this conversation four years ago, TikTok probably wouldn't have been in the debate and yet it suddenly is and, and Twitter would have been right at the tip of our tongues because it was dominant and now it seems to be a little bit on the wane so you know these things move very very quickly and I think it's about kind of the core competence co uh, the core competencies more than anything else yeah and, and you're right we never know what's around the corner and you know like the other day like snapchat was in the news and I was like snapchat are people still using snapchat and there is there are certain people that are still maybe certain age groups that are still using things like snapchat and other other platforms so yeah it's always evolving um so yeah I guess it's just like you say trying to keep our skills up to date as much as possible but yeah it's very very tricky well, both of you, thank you so much because it's been really fascinating and I'm sure we could um, talk about this all day, but you've um, both you've given lots of food for thought um, and lots of different platforms that you've mentioned that we'll put in the show notes as well as uh, a few people you've mentioned um, on TikTok. We'll, so we'll dig them out and add them to our uh, show note resources as well. But just before we sign off, um, we're going to ask you both for a recommendation for a piece of work by a freelance journalist. So Stephen, let's come to you first. What's your recommendation? Sure. So Long Reads has basically become my site that I'm obsessed with, that I try to read as much as I can, because they put out really good work. And they put out something last month uh, by Seth Simons, who does the humorist, uh, called Who's Afraid of Lorne Michaels? Uh, which basically just talks about how the guy who's done SNL for the past 50 years is kind of influenced a lot of Hollywood culture and media, while SNL has also had an incredibly toxic workplace. So I've always loved comedy. I got my start in stand-up. So coming to the realization that Lauren is kind of the one who's shaped a lot of the weird humor we've seen today was, was definitely an interesting an interesting read. Fantastic recommendation. Thank you. And we have a, a podcast episode on long reads in this series. So it's all it's all very full circle and, and tying in very nicely. And Chris, what's your recommendation? Yeah, mine was initially going to be a, a story by Miles Clee, but then I realized that he got a job, which is good. He's a really interesting <laughs> internet culture writer. So um, I'm a huge fan of Jessica Lucas, who is a UK-based journalist who covers a lot of kind of internet culture stuff. And um, she kind of will, she's kind of like, I guess, a, a deep cover submarine sometimes in that she'll go silent for several weeks and then just pop up and produce these absolutely incredible stories that are sort of sourced from and about sort of social media and like really utilize very intelligently 
different platforms to find not just stories but interviewees and actually she has her um twitter her reddit username in her twitter profile which i think is quite smart and shows how valuable she finds that uh, mine is from um kind of a few months ago but she did an amazing story on um an issue around TikTok where users were kind of being encouraged to drink to excess on live streams. Um, and it's it's kind of a weird intersection of like the online world and the offline world and health all coming together and showing how like, you know, sometimes there's a lot of friction around these things. Uh, and it's just really, really powerful. Um, it's published on the Huffington Post and just really, really worth anybody's time to read. Thanks, Chris. That's fantastic. We will put the link to both those articles as well in our show notes so listeners can go away and have a read for themselves. Um, it's time to bring this episode to a close. Thank you again, both Stephen and Chris. Fantastic advice. Um, very sensible and actually what I thought could be a very depressing topic is uh, it's all fine it's fine I'm fine with it it's okay <laughs> we'll just carry on regardless um, so if you'd like any more tips on how to develop a successful career then sign up to our newsletter on Substack which I suppose you could also sort of call a social media now that it's got its notes um, but uh, don't worry we won't be sending you notes it's just a weekly newsletter and on there, we share tips and personal experience. Uh, you can also join our Facebook community. We didn't really mention Facebook. We have a very large Facebook community. There's like 7,000 members in there now. If you've got any questions about uh, freelancing, um, you can ask and get some very experienced journalists giving you quick answers. Um, we are on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. We call it, we're going to call it Twitter forever. Uh, we're at Freelancing4 and I'm on there as at Emma Journo. And I'm at Lily Cantor. And finally, a big thank you to our producer, Maddie Drury. Yep, and we'll be back next week. Bye for now. Goodbye. <laughs>